we uh, there's not a rule that you have to do, use the three subs. You don't find us competitive. Um, he's, he's the best left back in Canada, without a doubt. Alrighty, welcome back, everybody. Episode 22 of the third sub. We're racking up the numbers and things are getting intense. It's The games are starting to return. MLS soccer is back. I mean, by the time we drop this episode in our next one, the Whitecaps won't have played a game, but we're starting to talk about Whitecaps games. We're going to talk about formations. We're going to talk about news. It's you know, it's not necessarily the old normal, but it's definitely a new normal. And I'm happy to be back with you. Your co-host of the third sub, Alexander Gongiruzic. I'm here with Samuel Rowan. We're running, uh, we're running shotgun today. No, no big guest today, but stay tuned. We are working on uh, some special stuff for episode 23. But for episode 22, this is a Whitecaps only new only podcast. No CPL this week, but we're waiting on news. So hopefully in the future, but. All white caps, all Group B. Well, the white caps part of Group B. But how, how are you? How are you doing this week, Sam? And how 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 are you feeling ahead of this uh, jam-packed white caps episode? Yeah, doing pretty well. And and it's interesting to think that you know we're now five days away from a white caps match, and it very much feels like we're in the sort of the the news cycle of a of a pre-match, which has been a long time coming now. And obviously, we've seen a couple matches played in the MLS's back tournament. Um, I think varying degrees of entertainment there. I think the opener was pretty good, and then the the last two a little bit a little bit rustier, maybe more what we expected. But uh, yeah, lots of Whitecaps news to talk about. We haven't really touched on the notable absences from the tournament yet, from a Whitecaps perspective. So there's some I don't want to say roster issues, but just see, you know some challenges that Mark Dos Santos is going to have to face. So I think we're going to talk about that. Maybe what we'd like to see from the tournament versus what we might see MDS do, and uh, yeah, talk about you know just. The, the broadcast, I think, because there's been some interesting talking points about the, the product they put out so far on television and the numbers we've seen. And so we're going to get into all that and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, I guess to start off kind of what, what do you think your first impressions of the tournament so far, at least myself, I've been, you know, from what I've seen, I did watch the full first game, caught pieces of the two games that were on on the second day. So I guess NYCFC versus Philly and uh, Montreal Impact versus uh, New England. But I don't know about you, but I think it's obviously it's expected to be sloppy. I think MLS is already just mostly a pretty sloppy league and that's not a negative thing or whatever. It's just typically it's kind of a helter-skelter, run-and-gun, whatever you want to call it. You were kind of used to that and I think with the sloppiness, the rust, which I just think you cannot expect these players not to have, it's made for some, you know, interesting soccer. And at least for the most part, like give the give it credit. Each of the three games so far, they ended with three points given out to a team. There wasn't any draws. There wasn't any nil-nil. So I think so far, entertainment-wise, it's delivered. And I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of curious to see what you've taken away from just MLS being back despite all the road bumps on the on the way to this you know, finally having the tournament start on time. 
Well, I, I think I noticed that, you know, there, there's, there's that initial moment where they walk out onto what is essentially a training pitch and you go, oh, this is really weird. Like, I'm not sure how I'm going to get used to this. But then 20, 30 minutes into the first match, I felt kind of acclimatized. It's like, okay, this is the new normal for now. And, and you know, little things like having more pitch audio, which is something we can talk about a little bit <laughs> down the line. But, you know, you, you just get used to it. And I think overall the quality of the play in comparison to what we normally see in MLS has been pretty decent. I think it's just maybe, you know, a factor of we've been watching Bundesliga and Premier League, and obviously that's on a different level than MLS. So it takes, it it takes a little bit to get used to the MLS style of play again. But um, I think overall I've been pretty, pretty content and and happy with the first couple matches. And obviously it's, uh, it's more entertaining when, when it feels like there's more on the line. And even tonight, we've got the first Group B matchup. So I'm definitely going to be watching that one closely. Yeah, well, I think it's interesting just to have the league, you know, back and just seeing games and seeing these players back. And I think after what was a rocky few weeks, I think the MLS just needed those good vibes. And I think you can definitely tell the tide is turning from the bad parts to the good parts. Obviously, the Dallas situation was sort of, I can't quite remember. I think as of recording last week, had they had they made the Dallas decision? No, they had not made the Dallas decision. Um, we were talking about it with JJ, and it kind of seemed inevitable. And it wasn't too long after that podcast went out that Dallas FC did indeed pull out. And then obviously, kind of following the opening matchup of the MLS's back tournament, we also saw Nashville Soccer Club pull out. And that was kind of, I think the writing was on the wall when, Don Garber said a decision would be made overnight Mm -hmm. that kind of sealed their fate. Uh, You could tell obviously Garber didn't want to, you know, make a a public proclamation on air about Nashville pulling out, but you could kind of see the writing on the wall there. And then early this morning, apparently an SKC player has tested positive. So that's the first, um, first case outside of those two teams we've seen in a while i believe there was one columbus crew player who tested positive a while ago one on minnesota but uh we've seen other than those two teams it's been relatively contained and then also there's some consternation back and forth on i think a couple of the couple of the positive tests on fc dallas were maybe reviewed now and kind of seen as false positive so that's a it's a potential hazard as well um, we saw this on the, not to bring it to golf, but it's just something I follow. And we've seen multiple players on the PGA tour have to pull out of tournaments. And then it turns out that the test was a false positive. And so it is certainly something that does happen. And obviously when you're dealing with a bubble and, you know, everyone being kind of highly, you know, hyper aware of what's going on, uh, a false positive can also, you know, can create a lot of, uh, a lot of conflict and kind of, you know, panicking that, maybe isn't, uh, you know, necessarily that doesn't lead to, um, you know, the, the mass mess you're maybe expecting, but <laughs> kind of lost my train of thought there, but yeah, mm-hmm. basic, basically, uh, you know, false positives are a potential issue, but, um, obviously all the precautions are being taken and hopefully we don't see, you know, SKC break out like we've seen Dallas and Nashville do. Well, I think we're at a, crucial period because i did mention this in one of my written pieces last week it did feel like the bubble was on the point of popping and i guess in a sense it did because we lost two teams and that's not you know that's not a good thing let's say but now it's at a critical point because you only got one or 
two cases a team. You've got 24 teams, so your tournament's about as balanced as it's going to get because, you know, you don't have that, you know, ridiculous. Yeah, it's nice nice to see Group A no longer exist in its ridiculous format, yeah. Like, it's actually nice, and I feel as long as, obviously, the bubble, since it has popped, there's a risk it pops again, you know, fully, and hopefully that doesn't happen. But now be interested to see if they can manage the storm. Because if they do, the games have gone on without a hitch. And, you know, that's kind of what I mentioned in the written, you know, in the written work. One concern I have is how I think the arrival was not handled properly of these teams. Why were teams allowed staggered arrival? Why are teams allowed to arrive within seven days of their game? Had they wanted to do this bubble seriously and really seal it off, I think all 24 teams should have arrived on the same day, or at least within two days, not to like overload the airports or whatever, have them all, you know, incubate or whatever in their little sections of the hotel for 14 days and still, you know, you know, they can train and stay proper isolated from each other, you know, or, you know, like actually do the bubble because we saw, what we've seen is a lot of players, obviously they bring it to the bubble and that spreads, but also we don't know how clean these airports are in Orlando considering that what they said over 50% of Orlando airport staff at some point have tested positive. Like we don't know if the plane's going to be clean, if, where they're picking it up. And I feel like at that point, you just go into the bubble 14 days before the first possible game. So that would have been what, like June 23rd or 4th. For two weeks, you quarantine properly. You you can train maybe as a group or something. You do want to keep the players fit. You don't you don't want to like you know ruin the quality of the tournament, but properly isolate. Because if you're gonna do a bubble, you need it to be airtight. It's not like you know the Bundesliga or Premier League. You look at the Bundesliga what they did due to it like the league starting properly. You know it doesn't matter if you know what teams do they're not affecting each other obviously if a team has an outbreak they don't play etc etc but you know as long as they tested positive before each i mean not positive negative before each game and you know they did what they could to limit contact that's fine but within a bubble where the contact is kind of staggered and you know it's going across teams that's where it starts to get dangerous and that's kind of that's kind of what we noted so i think with that how how they structured it it was always going to cause risk and i think it's the risk is going to be there until we kind of sort out this storm of positive cases. But I think if they can keep it low and make sure to cut off the spread, I think this tournament does have the potential to be entertaining. And I think it'll be look, looking back, it'll be a, a good time. Maybe, you know, people have questions for motivation, but I do think so far there's potential. It does feel like the momentum's kind of trending in the right direction now for MLS and uh, we were chatting with Max Cropo yesterday and he kind of shared his comments on, you know, his experience in the bubble so far. And it was interesting to hear him talk about the fact that the Whitecaps are essentially treating it as their own bubble within the bubble, that they're not going and hanging out with players on other teams or, you know, intermingling with other staffs that they're really trying to keep their little group tight, tightly knit and, you know, maybe, hang out with each other, doing their own little activities, but not, you know, just hanging out all around the facility. Cause I think there is a bit of a concern there that, you know, if we've seen Dallas and Nashville have issues, it's kind of like a team wide breakout, you know, can the other teams necessarily be, be trusted. Um, and uh, yeah, we just, you know, hope that teams like Minnesota, SKC, Columbus don't have any more issues, but it does seem like 
now that everyone's traveled and everyone's been there for a decent amount of time, there's a, a better handle on things. Now it's just kind of the matter of making sure people keep the proper practices in place. And uh, MLS has been good with the use of masks around the facilities. And, um, you know, we obviously you just have to, like we saw in the Bundesliga early days, you know, take every precaution that you can. And, uh, and that looks like the MLS is doing that for the most part. And uh, yeah, we're going to see the Whitecaps get underway here. And one of the teams we're going to see the match up against, which we may not have expected is the, the Chicago fire Alex. Yeah, I think uh, in a rare, a rare turn of events, we saw groups change after the tournament started, and uh, out out goes the injury slash COVID slash personal issue plagued FC Dallas, and in comes the mysterious Chicago Fire, and I think it's going to be a good one. I think Chicago, as we're kind of touching on pre-show here. I think Chicago is going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be a fun team to watch. And I think along with Seattle and I think San Jose, I think the Whitecaps, they should have three good games of soccer. And I don't know how they're going to perform. I think I think they should be able to at least hang with all the teams and have the chance to win. But I think they're we're going to see three good games at the least. And, you know, obviously now with the – with the the new groups, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle specifically Group B and Nashville and Dallas's fates because for some reason, well, for some reason, it made sense back then when it was balanced-ish. These games count for regular season and for some reason MLS is committing to that. So I don't know how that's going to work for Nashville and Dallas. We're going to be in a three-game hole or Chicago who are still in the East, but they're going to be playing three Western teams and you know, three some three pretty decent Western teams. You're going to look at San Jose and Seattle and heck, even Vancouver. So I don't know how that's going to work for the future, but I think we're going to see some good games. And, you know, knowing what's on the, on the line, what we've seen so far with no draws throughout the tournament, clearly there's some sort of incentive to get three points. And I think it should be a, a good group B now. Yeah, well, I, I still kind of fail to understand how they're going to make that regular season standings make sense. That's going to be something I think that's going to continue to evolve. And, and we're only really going to, you know, maybe they're just going to do something where Dallas and Nashville, whenever they get their stuff together, they just play three matches head to head or something like that. But it, it seems a little silly to be keeping up the ruse of counting these as regular season matchups at this point, but just from a, from a Whitecaps perspective, looking at Chicago Fire, I think it's a it's a real unknown, right? Not only for for fans who you know probably over the last couple of years have just thought, okay, Bastian Schweinsteiger, and kind of forget the rest. But obviously, Schweinsteiger gone, no more Dax McCarthy, no more Gaetan. Um, but you've got some some lesser known guys, at least in terms of kind of you know name brands notoriety, but some some dangerous attacking players on Chicago, and you know. A couple, a couple young up-and-coming players that really haven't broken out yet. I think the, the primary concern for Chicago is going to be can they keep goals out of their own net? Because we saw in the first two matchups of the, the kind of proper regular season, they had an expected goals against of 5.3, which is just staggering, right? You, so you've got a bit of uh, it could be a really, really wide open matchup against the Whitecaps. And it's going to be very interesting to see by the time we get to that third match, how Mark DeSanto sets up his team, how Chicago's played against other teams in the group, 
But uh, I think, yeah, some Chicago is going to be a fun team to watch over the next couple of years and see how they develop. Cause you know, not only do they have a new look and, and you can make what you want of their logo and the, the possible similarities to the Whitecaps logo there, but uh, it, it's a team that has undergone a lot of change recently. And I think could be a sneaky, dangerous team say next season. So uh, Alex, what are your thoughts on the matchup and kind of some of the players that have stood out to you on Chicago? I look at their roster and I see, I think, if we're going to be honest, a very MLS lineup. But from what we're seeing of these signings, I think they're a lot more MLS 3.0 than they are MLS 2.0. Because they do got a lot of flashy international signings. They got a lot of good young players. They got a lot of, you know, it's not the typical 30-year-old American vets bugging away and then maybe three old DPs kind of, you know, that famed LA Galaxy model that worked so well before I think it's more towards those you know that LAFC that Atlanta model and you look at some players obviously some guys one returning face for me who you know who, who stands up for me is God trying to say this is in one one mouthful but per Semislaw Frankowski the Polish international he's you know one heck of a signing he's not even a DP for Chicago Yet they signed him last year. He was a Polish national team regular in Poland for, you know, they're a top 10 national team in the world. Obviously, they gamed the friendly system to get get that ranking, but they're a pretty good team. And, you know, they have good players. So to see a national team regular come over, he's not even a DP. And he was already uh, in limited minutes. He already had, what, five goals, nine assists last year? Yeah, a a, a sneaky, sneaky good five goals, nine assists. And just looking at the... The uh, MLS pronunciation guide. First name Shimasov Frankowski. So you got the yeah, you got the the interesting kind of you know um, multiple uh, you know uh, just a weird weird kind of start to a name for for us you know in North America and a different pronunciation. But yeah, he's a guy at only twenty five and you know just kind of his career is growing with the national team in Poland. Obviously it was a bit of a, I think probably for some in Europe, a bit of a strange move for him to, you know, come over on a non DP deal when he did, but uh, you know, really kind of, I think did about as well as you could expect in his first season in MLS. And I think you could really see him continue to grow and grow. And, and as a guy that can, you know, create a lot of goals from the wing and kind of leading from that, another guy that we've seen join the fire this year, this guy in his first year is uh, Robert Barich, who uh, he's a Slovenian striker and a guy he's that's a kind, of, kind of been in the wilderness the last couple of years because of a knee injury. But if you look kind of back four or five years ago, you've got in 2014-15, he played for Rapid Vienna in the Austrian League, and he had 30 goals and 38 appearances, which is, you know, nothing to scoff at, a really impressive record there. And then went to Liga and played for Saint-Étienne, but then as kind of mentioned after, after 81 appearances there, uh, ended up being loaned out after his knee injury and just kind of hasn't found form since. But he's a guy that, you know, at 29 can – can still very much have some good goal scoring days ahead of him. And I think with, uh, with that dynamic Polish winger out there serving him good balls into the box, it's a potential recipe for success. But uh, as mentioned, I think, you know, the fire are a team that they have a lot of really good pieces, but it's still a matter of bringing things together. And I don't think that 
you know, kind of like the Whitecaps last year, the fact that they haven't had a lot of matches to sort of figure things out and, and, and work on that team chemistry, the break probably hasn't helped them a ton. So it's going to be, we'll see what kind of style of play they, they have during this tournament, because I think they're going to be kind of figuring it out on the fly. Well, I think, yeah, the, look at their team and they have a lot of potential up front. Obviously we mentioned Barrich and Frank Kowski, but then they got, you know, someone like Ignacio Aliceda, they're one of their new DPs. He's a 20-year-old midfielder from Argentina. It's the kind of profile MLS is kind of, you know, he really fits the profile of this MLS 3.0. You've seen young Rossi, Pellegrini. American. You know, he gives off those, yeah, those Rossi, those Pellegrini, that, you know, that Rodriguez vibes, you know, on LAFC. You know, he's, he's a young, tricky midfielder and he's, He's clearly far from his prime of his career, and he's gonna build something in Chicago. And you, but at the same time, despite you know some of those younger players, they brought in someone like Gaston Jimenez, who's 28 in his prime of his career. He's got over nearly 250 games in Argentina's top division. Like those are two solid DP signings to go along with Frankowski, which again boggles my mind. He's not a DP, and that Barrett, who is a DP, I think you look at that as a front four. I think it's you know, pretty solid. You look compared to last year, what they had, you know, as a front four, I think they did pretty well. And you, you, they also got other guys like, you know, CJ Sapong, who's 31, but he, last year he still showed that he can score double digit. You know, you know I don't know if he scored double digits himself. I, I can confirm well, that. He's, a, he's he, a consistent MLS producer, and you, you always need guys like that in the roster, even if you're maybe, you know, hoping that the, the center of your team is founded around other guys. You, mm-hmm. you always want to kind of have those consistent performers that you can count for eight to ten goals in a season. Yeah, well, he, put, he bagged 13 last year, which, you know, considering usually – beyond the the usual suspects who score like 25 30 most strikers if they get 13 that's it's a respectable really good total season. that's a really good total especially considering chicago's you know struggle last year and then you look at someone like jordy mihailovic 21 future usmnt prospect one of the you know he's one of those young players to watch across the league him in the midfield you, you know you look at some of these players and you're okay this chicago team they've got pieces especially in the midfield and up front where I worry is the defense you just look at the defense there's just not much there you look at Francisco Calvo he's just one of the most in my opinion I don't know this is just one of the most overrated defenders in MLS I think he's an amazing attacking fullback I think back to the debut last year when he was on Minnesota where he torched the white cap scored a goal had like two assists but boy is defending a nightmare for him there's a reason why Minnesota was so you know they were open to move on from him. And you look at other defenders like Jonathan Bornstein, a 35-year-old, you know, American defender. You look at um, just going down the roster here, there's really not many defenders. Johan Kapelhoff, he looks interesting, a, a Dutch defender. He's, you know, he's 29. Uh, you know, there's, there is some potential here. He is, uh, he's been at Chicago for a while and he's, you know, he's, he's played 30 games a season. So he's clearly established himself but beyond some of those names it's like who's going to defend for Chicago and you know that we just don't know that yet and I think it's going to be interesting to see who they just end up putting at the back but I think if they can find a way to close the leakage and you know 
they have Bobby Shuttleworth in goal, and you know there are there are some other interesting names. Kenneth Cronholm also is a solid goalkeeper, and the one I I saw that surprised me the most is Chris Brady, who's sixteen and he's six three as a goalie, and I'm pretty sure he signed when he was fourteen, and so clearly there's something there with him. You know, there's or no, sorry, he didn't sign when he was fourteen. I think there's one goalie, maybe oh, I'm getting like these guys all mixed up, but I think he signed when he was fifteen, and now he's sixteen, like okay, there's some potential in goal. I just look at the back. The back really worries me. If they can, they can find a way to put the back together, I think we got a good team here. But It's kind of a classic classic MLS, even, even an MLS 3.0 roster where you kind of you get your midfielders and attackers and then it's like, oh, yeah, right, we need defenders too. Let's see if we can figure that out. And just, so, you know, I think, I think Chicago, just from, from a little bit of the research I'm done, it's, it, it's going to be a fun team to watch. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to having them in the group. But the one thing, Alex, I'm maybe not looking so forward to, and we might have buried the lead here a bit, that match is going to be at 6 a.m. Pacific time. So the, the dreaded early start, which, you know, Mark DeSantis was sort of so happy to have avoided initially – now they're going to have to face that. And as much as, we make, as much as we make jokes about the fact that we don't want to get up that early, it's a concern for the Whitecaps' preparation too, right? Because they, they predicated a lot of what they did showing up for the tournament on uh, you know, getting up at 10.30 Eastern time. So they're you know, kind of keeping their normal 7.30 Pacific wake up. They're essentially keeping themselves in the, in the cycle of play for those later matchups. And now they're going to have to go in three days from playing a game late at night to playing a game early in the morning. And it's going to be a challenge. Now it's obviously a challenge that lots of teams are facing. So, you know, I don't think the white caps can really cry foul and say that they're terribly hard done by, but it is something we're going to have to watch out for. And just talking with Axel Schuster and Max Cropo yesterday, it seemed like the mentality was basically, listen, we've still got those first two matches laid on to play. We have to continue our preparation for those. And once we finish that second match, then we can face the challenge of, you know, adjusting our bodies, getting up early and, and preparing for that third match. But yeah, Alex, maybe your thoughts on, you know, the drastic time change and just how that might affect the players. Hate it. Hate it personally because I want to wake up at 6 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. Well, it's tough, especially, you know, for us, we're trying to be active on Twitter. We're trying to write, you know, pre and post match stuff. And it it doesn't, it doesn't fit the schedule that well, for sure. It's it's just too early. (laughs) What kind of, why is there MLF games at six? Like, and it just boggles my mind because we live in market. We live in Vancouver. It's not like. I, I yeah, it's it's, diff- it's different if you live soccer. in the UK and you're watching MLS or you know or even okay you're in you're in Hawaii or something and okay there's some you kind of acknowledge that there's going to be some some time challenges yeah, there but yeah, yeah. even for, even for Chicago you have to ask like how many people are going to spend a couple hours of their, of their morning watching MLS soccer certainly you're you're scaring a lot of casuals away it's like why is you know i get the heat issue and all that but it just feels it just feels ridiculous that a team in market fans in market are gonna have to witness their team play at 6 a.m like that just like is there any sports league in the world that does that i feel like it's always like time zones okay i'm gonna watch canada play in the world juniors they're playing in czech or czech republic like 
okay, it's 6 a.m. You're used to it. You watch Premier League at 6 a.m. or 9 a.m. Well, like the, ex- the, the MLS would cite, you know, exceptional circumstances. But at the same time, it feels like MLS is the only league where this would happen. So there's yeah. just there's something very, very major league soccer about it's it. It's a which, Thursday. Who's, like, what about the people who have to work? In Vancouver, you know, what if people yeah. in Chicago have to work? Why are they 6 or 9 a.m. for Chicago? It's actually ridiculous that these Western teams are going to be playing at 6 on a weekday, too. Not, yeah. I mean, a weekend, that's still terrible. Who wants to wake up at 6 a.m. on, like, a Saturday or Sunday? That's just... <laughs> but it would be more palatable, at least for the East Coast people, to have a 9 a.m. kind of breakfast weekend match. But, yeah, yeah I think I think the idea of having it on a weekday just you know, tears away at the idea that, oh, people are going to get up in the morning and watch it because it, it's just not really realistic for a lot of people. Oh, it's, just, you... it, it's ridiculous on so many fronts. You look at personally, you look at the players. I mean, the players, yeah, whatever. They're playing at 9 a.m. local. Like, even then, for professional soccer players, like, for athletes, it's just going to mess with their body clocks to play so early. Like, they're going to have to wake up at 5 to, like, like they the, said on the broadcast. One of the questions asked yesterday was – when would have the last time been as a professional footballer? You probably weren't a professional footballer like when 15. it happened. When have you played that kind of time? Yeah, it's probably been 10 years for some guys, right? So it's, I mean, that's not to say that, you know, these guys shouldn't be able to yeah, no, get like up and perform. Like there's no excuses, but yeah, it, it's, it's just odd. It's just ridiculous. It's, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's like, I feel more for the fans. I feel like not even like, you know, whatever players, media, you know, if you look at it from a, how do I say it? A constructed standpoint is their jobs. You know, it's, it's not, it it's is, not the end of the world as much as their, it might be annoying. I think for fans though, what kind of fan, unless you're diehard is going to be like, you know what? I really want to wake up at 6am as a casual fan and watch the white caps. Play well, soccer. I think, like, I think the best example for me is that I would have watched that, philadelphia union match the other morning but the 6 a.m time made it essentially like Mm -hmm. oh i'll just catch the highlights or i'll watch it on tape delay i'll watch it later there was just no way you were going to get me to to get up at that time to watch something that i'm kind of a neutral neutral third party for yeah unless it's a final or it's a world cup Mm -hmm. world cup i'll wake up at 6 a.m when it was in russia i watched like 80% 80% of the tournament, most of it on time. I didn't record anything. It was, you know, for the World Cup, I'll wake up and watch Saudi Arabia, Russia at 6 a.m. It's a rare, you know, it's a rare occurrence and there's a lot on the stake. And obviously this is a World Cup style tournament, but it's still MLS. Like, you know, it's a club team. I watch, I'll watch MLS. I mean, when the MLS was back and I was in the Eastern time zone, I was able to watch most games or at like, you know, even then, the earliest game was at noon Eastern. Like, that's reasonable. And, you know, that's – and they're on weekends. I just think games at, like, 6 a.m. on a Thursday, if you want to engage fans hardcore and casual, it's just not the way to do it. I think the players will be fine. The media will be fine. I'm just worried about the fans. And, you know, this – you got to remember, this tournament's for money. I don't think making money – you know, you're not going to make money when you're getting, like, 100K views because your game's at 6 a.m. and it's between, like – you know, the Whitecaps and the Chicago Fire, as much as we, you know, we, we love to follow the Whitecaps and there's some fans of the Chicago Fire, you could argue there's those are two teams. They just, among fan support in MLS, let's say especially to neutral fans, is not too hot. Chicago had their issues yeah. because some, you know, they, they were poor, poor team was stuck in MLS 2.0. 
where their owner is like, you know what? I think the best way to drum up interest is to play an hour and a half in Chicago proper in the stadium in the middle of nowhere. And then you look at the Whitecaps, they have great fans, but obviously now fan support's a bit, you know, iffy. It's been tested. You know, a lot of fans have given up on this team. It's not a marquee matchup from a pure, you know, I think it's going to be a great matchup from a pure footballing standpoint, but from a marketing standpoint, it's not a marquee matchup. So why is, why is it at 6 a.m.? It's just, you okay, know. Well, if, if we want to continue on the sort of what grinds my gears segment of the podcast, <laughs> let's, talk, let's talk a little bit of coverage and what we've seen from the presentation and the matches so far. And I think as good a place to start as any is we were sort of, I don't want to say promise, but there was, we, we were constantly teased the idea of, oh, we're going to try some real different things with the broadcast, use, you know, multiple camera angles, really bring you closer to the action. And what we've seen so far is essentially more ads and a giant Adidas logo in the middle oh. of the pitch. And then also we've seen them give like a censorship course language warning at the beginning of the broadcast and then miss time cutting out the swearing during the broadcast. So I don't know, Alex. Where do you want to start there? I mean, I was. I, you I got like me, you the got idea. Me so wound up. I now. like the I idea of uncut. I like the idea of uncut audio. And I thought when they gave that warning at the start of the broadcast, I was like, "Sweet, we are going to hear all of it now." And then you know we get like. After uh, Dom Dwyer gets up from a foul call, we just get like 10 seconds of cutout audio be, like, because it's Dom Dwyer and obviously he's, you know, he's not hacking, hacking off the official. <laughs> um, but yeah, just Alex, your but thoughts. But then again, this, the censoring was garbage because I remember yeah. when, uh, well, what's his face scored? When Mueller scored, he knee slides and he goes right up to the Miami sub. He's like, F you, you have been little. I'm like, oh my God, yeah. that went right. And then they cut it out. Basically, when he stopped talking, they cut out the audio. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. Good job, guys. You're gonna, you're gonna censor. Oh, that's gonna grind my gears. I've... But, but just yeah, your thoughts on the like? I wonder oh. if they're gonna listen to feedback and kind of adapt that over the course of the tournament, or is 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 this the broadcasting standard we're gonna see for the rest of the tournament? And yeah, I don't know. I'm just it's... I'm 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 a little disappointed, but I'm also not very surprised. It's too bad because they did some good things. Like they didn't put crowd notes, which is great. You know how, yeah. how nice it was to hear the atmosphere. And people noted who watched the Premier League, for example, where they pipe in the crowd noise versus the Bundesliga. It's so nice to just hear whatever is in the stadium, be it a thousand. If it's a hundred thousand fans or nothing, it sounds great to hear the ball getting kicked, to hear them screaming, like to hear the, the passion. And then that was nice and it was good to hear, but it's just like, I don't know why censor. Obviously, you're a family-friendly league, but, you know, and that's on the players for not behaving necessarily family-friendly. But at the same time, I think kids kind of realize it. And I think as long as the players aren't, like, you know, they're saying, aren't saying slurs and they aren't saying anything, like, you know, being insulting. Like, if a guy drops an F-bomb when he gets tackled in the leg, like, it happens. Obviously, you maybe you prefer he if you're going to be a family friendly league, you prefer maybe he thinks of something else, but it's not the end of the world. Maybe I could see it would be frustrating for the league. If someone just goes on an expletive well, laced rant. What I would, what I would say is, you know, as a not, I'm not a professional sound mixer. and would never profess to be, but rather than like cutting out the entire audio, surely you could have the mixer. Like if some profanity starts being said, you could just turn the levels on that mic down 
mm-hmm. for, you know, like, I don't think you don't need to necessarily hear, you know, 10 seconds worth of swearing at full volume, but at the same time, just the, the sort of hilarious way they've tried to cut both, it out, both censor it and not it censor it and kind of walk the line somewhere between you're going to get to hear everything, but we're also going to cut it out when we feel like it. It's just yeah. it kind of, kind of missed the mark from my perspective. Yeah. And I think one thing I'll note is if you're going to block out swearing, block out gambling ads. For example, MLS now is with gambling. And I think if you're going to look at what my, if I'm looking at my child, if I had a child, if I want them to become gamblers or swear. I'd what, take what's swear more potentially harmful? I'd, I'd take swearing 100,000 times out of 100. Yeah. But why is MLS sponsored now by a gambling website? Why on the MLS soccer? Well, one, there's one gambling makes odds. money and one doesn't. Follow <laughs> yeah, and it's money. ridiculous because it's like, we're going to talk about you toe the line as a league. I know you guys need to make money, but is that the line you're really going to toe over? It's swearing versus gambling. You'd rather, you know, you'd promote gambling versus swearing. And, you know, that's, it's, it's just like, I don't know. You kind of got to pick your battles. And I don't think they're necessarily picking the right battles. And I mean, if we're going to move off of the censoring, because again, like the other topic, we could go on all day. Totally. Sponsorships, again. Well, it's very clear what this tournament is about. It is yeah. about making money for the league. And I mean, even Don Garber said like three weeks, a month ago, that this is yeah, about no, satisfying sponsor agreements. And yeah, we saw that saw. very clearly in the first match, but it was funny. I don't know for anyone out there and listening to the podcast, if you've seen the differences between the sky mm-hmm. broadcast of the MLS UK. is back and either ESPN or TSN it's night and day because Sky just does not care. They're not putting any of the ads up there. Beautiful. All the kind of blank spaces that the MLS has left for ad overlays, they've just not used. And sure. meanwhile, you see, uh, yes, Sapoto or Saputo, pardon me, you know, big, big dairy in Canada <laughs> spending well, drop, drop, dropping a huge bag I, on sponsorship because they, they were all over the place on the TSN broadcast. Well, this is this is my thing that really, you know, pissed me off since we're in real, full rat mode here. If you're going to put a giant overlay of an Adidas logo in the center circle, that just looks, quite honestly, looks appearant. It's Also, it's, like, it's players disgusting. phasing through it, and they're, like, their socks and their boots getting kind of, like, warped through the logo. It just like, looked off. Let's be real. It's disgusting. Why not use that technology to your advantage? Imagine... Or why not just like play, put an Adidas logo in chalk on the actual pitch so that it doesn't look so ridiculous? First of all, that's brilliant. But second of all, you have this technology. What's stopping you from using it to help your viewers? Like I'm just thinking, what if in a break of play in the water or halftime, you use that technology to have an overlaid heat map on the or pitch, for example? Possession, passes or possession, passes completed. XG phases. Yeah. Or you know, you know top yeah. top speed of a of a runner as he's a guy's bursting down the wing. Give us his top speed. You know, give us like, things if like you're that. You're gonna have this technology to have an Adidas logo all game and not you know have it look like it's painted on the field. Can we at least have that technology help us at the same time? If you're gonna do that, like, can we not have it like? And make you know, it just, make it presented by Heineken, presented yeah, by like, Adidas, it whatever. It's fine. It doesn't but give us information to, we want. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be, like, in the game. Because I get that. Like, I don't want to be watching a game. And, like, I'm playing FIFA video game. And there's, like, a thing that pops up on the player. And it's tracking as it goes. 
But when you're talking in a break and play or you're showing a replay, there's a cooling break or halftime, like use that. I think it'd be so interesting for learner uh, viewers who are learning about soccer, engage the casual fan, engage the hardcore fans. I feel like they want to learn that. You know, like obviously you go on Twitter, those stats pop up throughout the game, but how nice would it be to like get that? But okay, like you're saying, for example, white cap Chicago, white caps are struggling at attacking. Then imagine if you had the heat map interposed on the field to show the struggles or you know oh the white caps are really attacking down the left and you're able to like use the field as your accessory to explain that i feel like that would be awesome i just like use like- use that audi player index which i think doesn't get it's you know it's interesting often gives you some interesting statistics yeah, and, and, they, and they don't very well they don't really publicize it or use it in a way they could okay but anyways i think that's <laughs> probably you know i mean we could go on all day but if we want to transition to something a lot more positive, actually, do we want to talk about what we saw in the opening match um, put together by that, um, that coalition that MLS has created and just the whole, I don't know, demonstration sort of ceremony, just recognition of black lives matter that took place before the first match. Um, I was, I was blown away and, and really impressed at, you know, the fact that MLS who I I tweeted this out, like MLS has been uber slow to react to a lot of social issues, social issues, pardon me in the past and to, you know, go full bore behind this. And I think really like nail a moment that needed to be nailed. Um, I was super impressed and then moved Alex be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, basically last week on our last episode, if you listened, we had a good like, 10, 5, 10 minute chat with uh, JJ Adams with the, about the Black Players Coalition of MLS before we got cut off by our, you know, by our, our, our call here. But it was, you know, we, we did mention the importance of having a platform and giving Black players a voice. And one thing that Justin Morrow, the head chair of the, you know, of the coalition, he mentioned on the halftime of Miami versus Orlando is that now the players have a direct line to Don Garber on various issues and that includes protests and what was great about this was that it was you know it was done in accordance of MLS and obviously it's great that MLS is supporting but often with protests you can see it creating rifts in the league I think immediately of the NFL versus Colin Kaepernick it was great to see a this felt league. like a uniting moment not yeah. a dividing moment it felt like a, like what the NWSL did it felt like a league-backed movement that had, because, you know, the MLS, it was the opening game, was at a good time slot. People in the UK were able to watch. It wasn't too late. People in North America all over were able to watch. It was, there was a lot of views. I'm pretty sure they were saying over, like, on ESPN alone, it was over 600,000 views, which for an MLS game is pretty impressive. And you got all these eyes on the TV, and what you do is you use your platform, and you have, it was amazing how pretty much all, every black player in MLS that was there all represented their teams and all stood and, you know, it had messages on their on their T-shirts and they kneeled for eight minutes and 46 seconds in honor of, you know, George Floyd's murder. I think that's a powerful message. If you turn it, it was 846 of silence on well, your what, TV. You what really, yeah, what really stuck with me was that, and not this is not necessarily taking away from any other, you know, demonstrations or, or kind of, you know, showing of solidarity that we've seen through other leagues, but the fact that this was so 
impossible to ignore. It wasn't something, it wasn't something where you could go grab a drink and come back a minute later and it was gone. It Mm -hmm. was at some point you had to stare at that screen and recognize what was going on and, and acknowledge what you were seeing. And I think that's, you know, that's a lot of the power and what we're seeing going on right now is that issues that people have been able to hide from or just push aside, it's now getting to a level where you can't do that anymore. And to see MLS, you know, at the forefront of that and, and backing something so powerful, it, would just, it was a really special moment. And I'm kind of proud that proud of the MLS that they, that they put that together mm. and proud of the players who really, you know, started this movement and really initiated everything. Shout out again to the, as I mentioned, NWSL, they yeah. did a great job with theirs as well. But what's special I feel about the MLS, what they did was that they used the fact that they had every team in Orlando and they had a 24 team protest. I think that was awesome because in games in Germany, for example, it's effective, but it's one or two guys, you know, yeah, you don't get that same opportunity. Your whole league, pretty much, like it was actually, you know, it's pretty powerful to think about. Every, pretty much every, except for Dallas and probably Nashville, every black player in the league was on the field. Like there's 150 or so black players just on the field, or maybe 100. I don't know. My numbers might be well. That's a lot of, you know, just black players standing up for themselves and sending a message all at once. And I think that's the importance of having a coalition. I think if you're a young black soccer player, especially since it's happened in North America, where the crux of this, you know, this movement's really sparked. And I think it was a great platform, great timing, well executed. I think I've loved how MLS has really used their platform. And I think, you know, they've always, you know, MLS is kind of for social issues. I think it's been a league where amongst North American sports, it's been one of the more outspoken you know, outspoken leagues on social issues. Obviously, their pride nights are a lot more, you know, in, how, how do I say? They're a lot more effective. They're, they're across the market. They got the, you know, when it's pride night, for example, you got pride nets, you got pride, you know. Well, I think it's heavily publicized too, which you yeah, don't necessarily see in ignored. other leagues. Yeah. It's not like, you know, swept under the rug. It's the MLS box that you- They, they seem proud of the fact that they they try to put on a really good- pride event and they and the mls you know has tweeted a lot recently about you know black mm-hmm. lives matter and everything that's going on and it's like that's even though it seems insignificant it, it is it is powerful nonetheless and we can deride them for last year when there's the whole iron front controversy and maybe mm-hmm. they didn't handle that as well as you would have expected to you know and they, they didn't do basically that wasn't one of their shining moments. But aside from that, they've done a sparkling job at handling tough social issues, ones that will divide fans. Fans are going to be out there and be like, well, I don't want to keep my politics out of soccer or the people go, oh, we don't want any of this stuff in soccer. Well, Well, part of the beautiful soccer, it's such a like, yeah, it's such an inclusive sport. And to think about it, all you need is a pair of shoes and a ball. And that's why people all over the world play. People of all genders, all races and whatnot, they play it. And it's such an inclusive sport. I think if people aren't going to be willing to accept that, well, then I don't think the soccer community wants that as a, wants them as a whole. And without throwing any names out there, because we don't want to give any attention to trolls, but we kind of saw that this week and we yeah. see how, you know, yeah. if, community, if you know, you know. If you know, you know, but, yeah. you know. You, so it's basically you, it's good to see the MLS use its platform and be like, okay, 
we're not going to be like other leagues where they say this is for all and they don't really show it. They've backed it and they, with these protests and with, you know, what they, what we saw in the first few games it was incredible. Obviously, you kneel in the Orlando game, but I think of Philadelphia, they took the time, supported by their coaches, to put 11, you know, innocent Black people that were murdered by police on their jerseys instead of their name bars. Like, that's a powerful message to see, you know, Andre Blake have George Floyd's name on his back. Uh, I forget who someone had Breonna Taylor's name on the back of his shirt, and, you know, like, we talk about making sure these people aren't forgotten. That's an awesome way to, to make sure. And I think, you know, we can see the impact that having these tough messages has. Cause I think, I don't know if you guys, or maybe you guys, if you're soccer fans, you probably follow him, but Jonathan Tannewald of the Philadelphia Inquirer, he's kind of one of the, he's one of the big media guys in MLS and he's a you know, former head of the, the media union in MLS. And he wrote an article on that. And, you know, he, as you know in his article he covered it and you know we got a lot of angry readers like oh why is this politics and sport and all that you see the importance of having this message and you know i just think it's it's good it's good for the league to have to use their platform to their advantage especially north america where politics and sports is not like in europe where it's a lot more of a symbiotic relationship and it's good to show that yeah, you don't want politics and sports. Well, just sports are inherently political. And, you know, it's good to use the platform. And so as a final kind of thought on that topic, it's also worth mentioning too that uh, Thierry Henry in the impact match, he kneeled for uh, the same amount of time, the eight minutes and 46 seconds, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so to see someone like Henri, who is, you know, well, not, not just an MLS icon, but this is a global soccer icon. And that's certainly a moment and, you know, images and video that would have been spread across the internet on Twitter, on Instagram. And so a great, you know, personal showing from him, just kind of continuing on a really positive trend over the last couple of days. And I think Alex, just to, to touch briefly on kind of, what you talked about with, you know, the MLS being on top of some of these social issues. I think you also benefit from a, a fan population in North America. That's probably more on the, you know, tolerant multicultural side in comparison to some other North American sports. And so Mm -hmm. I think you, you have that advantage of having a fan base who's most likely already behind a bunch of these social issues. And so you can lean into it a little bit more. And it's good to see that they're embracing that. Well, to speak of Henri as well, I think it's important he uses his platform as a, as a famous player, but also as one of the only two out of 26 black coaches in MLS. And don't math, math. I don't know how, how good uh, I am at math, but two out of 26. It's a small percentage. Let's just say that. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll calculate it here as I but you know two out of 26 there's not a lot of black coaches in in the history of MLS most of the black coaches I mean obviously Cherry Henry does kind of fit this mold but you know usually they're high profile you know European names I think a rude Hullet with LA Galaxy you know nine for example and I mean you know that that's a tough subject to, to broach but basically you know black coaches in MLS maybe might not have gotten the same chances as their you know white counterparts and that's a problem in Europe too they've noted where despite England for example in England I read a study for a paper that in England most despite having there be like something like a 20-30% of black people in their leagues their coaches was like 2% black and like no head coaches and I think of that in MLS where 
again, their percentage of, you know, black players and, you know, players of other races is very high. But yet you look across the benches, it's mostly white people. And, you know, it's great to see someone like Henri and then, you know, it's him and uh, Fraser. First name escapes me. I don't want to say it wrong, but is it Ryan Fraser? Yeah, Ryan Fraser, I think, on, of Colorado, formerly of uh, Toronto FC as an assistant. They're, he's the only, they're the only two black coaches in MLS. So I think for them to use, obviously, you know, Ryan Fraser hasn't had a chance to play with TFC yet, but for Henri to use his platform. And, cause there aren't many, you know, black coaches out there. And I think for young kids, they're going to be like, you know, it's tough for them to see why are all the players on the pitch you know, why a lot of them look like me, but why do coaches not look like me? Why is it always an old white guy thing? And it's always, I think it's going to be good to get more black coaches. I think of to Africa. I look, I watch a lot of African soccer. It's annoying to see 80% of the teams, you watch these teams and they're, you know, it's like Togo versus Djibouti. And why is there just two old French dudes on the bench? You probably don't know how to coach, but so the posh European guys, they hire them and they just bring them to mediocrity. That's why, you know, I'm happy. I think of my team, Senegal. We, the coach, Al Ucisse, is a former player, and he's, he's black. He's, he's a head coach, and he's going to go to Europe. And, he's, you know, it's great to have those voices. So I think it's important to have that, and hopefully more players, thanks to the, you know, Black Players Coalition at MLS, I think uh, the Athletic wrote a nice article this week. It's free to read if you, you know, don't have a subscription. They did make this one free to read. They interviewed Black players of, you know, the – some of the bigger names in the coalition, they mentioned how for them, a lot of them want to be GMs and coaches, but they don't, you know, it's an old, it's typically an old boys club. There's, they hire each other as we see in NHL, how there's the joke, how like 36 coaches basically just keep, give each other a job each time they're fired. It's kind of like that, you know, in, in soccer as well. And I think with this new coalition, we'll, hopefully we'll see some players. Like I think of a Kai Kamara right away or, you know, some of these veteran, you know, black players who are really outspoken, if they can become head coaches and become general managers and join the likes of Henri and Fraser, who are both former players themselves who played in MLS, I think that can only be better. But yeah, that's basically, that's basically all I had to say for this. But I think it's important. And I think it's something that we won't forget. And hopefully we can continue to highlight as this tournament goes along because hat tip to MLS for that. Yeah, so after sort of ripping them for some of their presentation stuff and, and, and broadcasts and advertisement, we can definitely give them kudos when we, when we see something really positive going on and, and hopefully that continues to uh, you know, be something they vocally support. But with that, I think we're going to kind of move to some Whitecaps news and there's actually been a, a surprising amount we haven't had a chance to talk about yet. So first and foremost, you know, let's address the fact that there have been some significant roster changes since we last chatted in terms of who is actually at the MLS's back tournament. So you've got no Lucas Cavallini, no Freddie Montero, no Toussaint Ricketts, no Andy Rose, and no George Mukumbawa. Is that how you say Mukumbawa, it? Mukumbawa, yes. Mukumbawa. Okay. I can't do it as well as you, but I'll try my best. So those five are not on the trip which means, you know, we've seen some guys that maybe we weren't expecting to see, like Michael Baldissimo and Simon Coline make the trip. But it also has created some potential problems because you've got two things that I think really stuck out to me. You've only got four center backs, and one of them is Eric Godoy, who is still kind of injured. It's, it's not entirely clear. It sounds like he's training, but Mark DeSantos also doesn't really expect him to play unless he has to. So you essentially have three healthy center backs, 
and you don't really have a out and out front man striker. Cause as much as uh, I guess me specifically, I won't attribute this to you necessarily, Alex, but I've been, you know, banging the drum of why is Theo bear, not a target man striker. And Mark DeSantos continues to go back at me saying that he's actually a winger and, you know, so really, if you consider Theo Bear as a winger, and maybe Alex, you could ask about this in your Instagram live because uh, shout out to the BTS boys. You're doing an Instagram live with Theo later today. Uh, but yeah, without Theo being considered an out and out striker, you don't really have that target man on the roster. So formation wise, I mean, the, the center back thing's less interesting. You just don't have a lot of depth. So if someone goes down injured, it might be a problem. Whereas on the front end of the roster, it's more how do we organize our front five or six to create some offense given the roster limitations you have. So Alex, thoughts, queries, questions, comments about the roster we've seen? First first of all, shout out to the Whitecaps for releasing their roster because yes, absolutely, 26 teams, yes. It's it's ridiculous. They're the only team to release their roster more than an hour yeah. before the first game. The, the roster, the other rosters, we know. And it's crazy. Yeah. It's like, stuff's coming out. Like, Inter-Miami-Orlando, I found out, first of all, their lineups were late to drop. Then I found out Kamal Miller isn't in the squad. Well, ta- Taylor like, Twelman of, of ESPN, he went on a bit of a Twitter rant about being, you know, we're, even, a, we're a national network covering this event and we don't have access to basic information like rosters prior so to it's the like match. why did i have to find out an hour before the tournament that the can mnt defender kamal miller just isn't in orlando's squad is he in, and they didn't even surprise know, is, he, is he injured because it's not like there is a who, know, who knows what like is he injured is he sick did he you know does he have this or that like that's you know good on the white caps for saying these are the 23 guys that traveled to Orlando, here are the guys who aren't going, here's why they're not going. That sort of transparency, it almost felt like Mark Panis was in the room again. And, you know, maybe that's his ghost, uh, you know, living on in the Whitecaps. But it was nice to see that from the Whitecaps. And, you know, we've given them a lot of flack and rightfully so for maybe not always being transparent at times. I think they nailed that. And I think that was a great decision to just be like, no, we don't have anything to hide. I don't know why there'd be anything to hide. I feel like it should be compulsory to have your roster released for a tournament, especially more than an hour before the game. And I think it's it was great to see, you know, we know what we're dealing with. And, and we know why, too. We, they basically threw all the water out on speculation. Like, okay, Cavallini, he didn't feel like traveling. He's got a couple of young kids at home. It's fa- he lost some family members to COVID-19, you know our thoughts and prayers are with him and his family for losing. I think it was one of his grandparents and one of his older relatives. So thoughts and prayers are with this. And it does show the the deadliness of this, of this virus. And then you look at Andy Rose too, expecting a kid, obviously he's a bit immunocompromised, but it didn't sound like it was going to be an issue, but he's having a kid. He's staying home. Wise decision to St. Ricketts does have an underlying health condition. So, you know, good on the doctors for making the right decision and holding him out. And, uh, or the other ones, Freddie Montero, again, personal decision, young daughters, family, doesn't want to put them at risk, you know, smart decision. And lastly, George McCumble, it was good to know that it's a visa issue, that since he isn't a, he doesn't have a passport yet, he's just a permanent resident. He usually had the borders been open yeah. as usual. That, that you, right fine. now, given the state of 
Canadian yeah, U.S. No, border no. relations, you do not want to mess with that. Yeah, well, basically, since he's only a permanent resident, typically you can get a visa to travel, you know, when things are normal. But obviously now, like with the border shut down, yeah. it's basically like you needed a passport to, you know, to get in the, the country. And sadly, you know, I guess his passport, if I'm not mistaken, would be from the DR Congo. And it's one of those countries that, you know, if just aren't on the U.S.'s list because still they, the U.S. does blacklist a handful of countries at least that cannot enter with so hopefully he can clear that out eventually because he's a young prospect but it was nice to get that transparency from the white caps and it's good mm-hmm. because I think well I'll probably write about it within the next four days but it'll be good for projecting lineups and stuff and we'll do a little little of that shortly here but it was just it was just good to have that sort of information available to us. And I think the white caps are wise because there's no reason to hide that sort of stuff. There's no reason to play secretive, play a little secret detective. I shouldn't, you know, people shouldn't have to be sleuthing on Instagram videos to be, okay, this guy traveled or this guy, this or that. I just think it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's good just to see that sort of information released by the white caps. Yeah, so if we want to continue on the transparency front, let's talk a little bit about Lucas Cavallini's comments. He went on TSN 1040 a couple of days ago with Karrison uh, Price and did an interview after kind of the news went out that he was not going to be participating. And there were a few quotes from that that sort of gained a lot of traction. One of them being that Cavallini felt players were, and I'll use air quotes, scared to go to Orlando and another one saying that he kind of felt like the players didn't have a choice. And so those two quotes I think were really grasped onto, but I think for anyone who's heard the audio um, you know, those two quotes in isolation sort of told a different story than what Cavallini was talking about. I think he was just speaking to the struggles of a professional footballer and the fact that it's your job makes you feel like you have an obligation. And at the same time, obviously you're concerned about the health risks. So I think it was a fairly, it was just a very honest kind of, you know, I think a, a totally fair quote, but obviously a couple of those quotes kind of took off and, and people were making a lot of them on Twitter. But Alex, what were your thoughts on what Lucas Cavallini had to say? What I like about Cavallini, I think this is why he's going to be a good leader for this club long-term is he really, he's really good at kind of speaking his mind and kind of, he's not one to let his thoughts linger and you can kind of tell what he, he says it as it is. And, you know, it kind of shows on the field. He's a really blunt player. He plays hard. And I think that's nice to have. Very, very direct both on and off the field. And that's very good to have as, as a leader because what he was saying is more like, you know, he's like, I'd be lying to you if I'd stand around and be like, Oh, we're feeling completely safe to go to Orlando. Yeah, and which is like, totally fair. I, that's totally, I, you know, in Vancouver, we're having, Yesterday, or you know, as a recording, we had 18 new cases due to an outbreak, or 16, or something like that, the other day, and I was like, "We're freaking out." Orlando, they're putting up 10,000 new cases a day. I'd be terrified to go to Orlando, where it feels like there. You go basically like you think of the Orlando Pride story, where they, they one or a handful of players went to a bar and they started a team outbreak. Like that's scary. Here we can go to the bar and not worry about outbreak. Here it's safe. You know, it's it's pretty safe for the most part. And, like, we can do things that other places cannot do without consequences. And I can see why as a player that's terrifying to leave. You know, I think of these players who you think of David Malinkovich, who just had a kid, he's got to leave his wife and go into this period and possibly get the virus. You, you know, you think of these – you think of these players, I'd be terrified too. And it was good to see Cavallini as a leader of the team be like, you know what, 
I think it's fine that we're scared and it's good because we talk, they talked to, you know, Bonnie and Dr. Bonnie Henry, they talked to health officials. They made as what Max Crippo described as their own bubble within the bubble. You see a lot of other teams mingling together. The white caps are strictly avoiding mingling for health purposes. They don't want to start an, you know, an outbreak. And I think that's good to see that sort of leadership from them and see that sort of honesty. Be like, you know what? We're scared, but we're learning and we're, we're going to play it safe. If players don't feel safe to travel, we'll grant them their full support to stay home. We're going to, you know, publicly announce it. We're going to let them announce it. We're not going to play secret. It's not going to be like, you know, when Carlos Vela's news dropped, obviously he's a big player, but it was a scoop. It wasn't like, you know, the Whitecaps thing. okay, these are our players and we support it. I don't even know if LAFC even made a statement on Carlos Vela's departure. I haven't checked to be fair, but hasn't, you know, at least I haven't seen it out there. I would have thought I would have seen it. So it's just, you know, it's good to see the Whitecaps embrace the unknown, you know, embrace the what they don't know. And I think that's going to be, it's important when you head into a tournament like this to accept that we're going into Orlando. It's not pretty. There's teams having outbreaks. It's this and that. And just be honest about it. And I, I appreciate Cavalini's honesty for that. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kudos to the Whitecaps for doing a good job at keeping it together and having this little bubble within the bubble, as they say, and, you know, keeping each other safe. So it should be, it should be good for them. And hopefully they can avoid any health problems as a result. Yeah. And I think you can, you can take the fact that both Lucas Cavallini and Freddie Montero, two important players and relatively high profile players for the Whitecaps haven't made the trip. You can kind of take that as some comfort in the fact that if players had genuine and serious concerns about their health and safety going to Orlando, they could have opted out because if those two players have decided not to go and the, and the team has, you know, kind of been in an alliance with them on that, then I think you can safely say that all the players are at least relatively confident that, you know, in their decision to, to have gone. And I know there was a bit of a, you know, back and forth on social media, not only with the white caps, but with other teams like Toronto FC about, you know, was the MLS or was the organization making players go? And, and I think we can say from a white caps perspective that that hasn't been the case. And, you know, at the same time, we can't pretend like, especially for young players and fringe roster players. There's pressure, obviously. Yeah, they they want to go because they want to prove themselves. And that's fair. And I think Cavallini, he's a DP. He's making yeah. multi-millions. He's the biggest transfer in the signings history, club's history. He can get away with that. Ditto with Montero. He's comfortable. He's, you know, he's played. He's earned his dues. He's not, you know, it's not as big for him right now to be fighting for a roster spot. He's got family to take care of. That's fair. You know, I think of a young player, we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about it. You think of someone like Raposo, Ryan Raposo or Simon Coline or guys who want to prove themselves, they wouldn't do that. And that's fair. They have a lot more at stake and they're not, they don't have maybe a wife and kids to think of, but you know, it's good that for the players that just didn't feel like risking themselves that they didn't and that Whitecaps supported them and they said they support them. I think for that, that's great. And I think before we go into that too much, I think we can, I'm curious to hear from you, Sam. You did mention this pre-show, but with what we know about the roster, I guess, A, kind of what do you expect to maybe see from the field, like expected lineups, expected subs, et cetera, et cetera. And then also B, with what we know, how do you think the Whitecaps will perform with that said lineup? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. And as I kind of alluded to you pre-show, I think what we might see as a starting 11 might be different from what I'd like to see from the starting 11. And so 
when we talked with Mark Dos Santos a couple of days ago about the challenges of a limited roster and just, you know, the changes to the roster and how that would affect his, you know, his lineup and what he thought two players that he mentioned individually were Ryan Raposo and Jordi Reyna. So Ryan Raposo in the sense that we can expect to see him play more minutes than we would have otherwise. And so I think for a lot of Whitecaps fans, that's very exciting and, and, you know, something we're definitely going to be watching out for. And then Jordi Reyna, because he's kind of been a bit on the fringes recently. I don't think he's been in DeSantos's good books necessarily, not only for, you know, some of the stuff that went on during COVID, but just also from a play perspective. I don't know if he's, he doesn't always have that high motor that Mark DeSantos wants. He has certainly flashes of that high motor, but I'm sure that DeSantos wants to see that more consistently. And so I kind of put together a bit of a, of a theoretical roster going into this one. And so I think if we just kind of go from the back up, we start with Max Cropo and goal. Obviously there's no real, you know, debate about that unless you have something groundbreaking for me, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of Cropo, there isn't, I don't think there's a oh, goalkeeping no, controversy. No. Castle? Yeah. Did, I mean, ha- happy, pass. happy birthday. I think that was yesterday. Tom yeah, it was Paul. yesterday. Enjoyed his birthday. So, you know, big shout outs to him and, 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 I mean, and he's a good goalkeeper, but there isn't really any debate there. I, mean, I think we can settle that. <laughs> I mean, Hassel did bits for me on my football manager save. I, I had to pull him in because Crepo got an injury and he yeah. got three sh- clean sheets off the hop, but no, I don't I'm, think. I'm always impressed when I see Thomas in training. So I think he's one to watch for the future, but for now, I think Crepo. Max has got that down. Then at the back, we talked about the fact that there's only really three center backs available and I think Alex and I can both agree that for whatever reason, the combination of Yasser Kamiri and Derek Cornelius, the back, just the chemistry is not quite there right now. And you, yeah, no, you got one wild card and you got yeah. one com. It just doesn't work together. Well, and also the thing is Cornelius is calm at the back until he's not, he has, a, he has these little short moments of where he's a bit all over the place. And so I think you, you can't have, Cornelius having a bit of a moment with Yasser at the back. It just doesn't work. And from when we've heard from Mark DeSantos, and it's the first time we really heard him talk about Ranko the other day, he talked about how impressed he was with the guy's leadership, how he understands now why Ranko was a captain um, back in Europe at such a young age, and that just how impressed he was with his maturity and his leadership ability and Mark kind of went on and on about how impressed he was with Ranko. So I've kind of penciled him in alongside Cornelius to make that center back pairing. And then obviously you've got Jake Nerwinski and Ali Adnan on the wings there at the back, you know, in the fullback positions. So uh, yeah, Alex, I don't know any additional comments there about the back four. I think personally, I really, I'm really high on Ranko. What I researched I did from before the season He's really got the attributes I like in a modern defender, but at the same time, he has that old school snarl. He has that old school ability to get stuck in, but he can play the ball. He's yeah, calm. I think we're going to see some crushing tackles, but but also, yeah, that ability to just kind of, you know, marsh, marshal things from the back. Like, I think he's going to be one of the most underrated signings DeSantos made. And, you know, I'm just impartial to Cornelius. I think his game goes under the radar. I'd prefer to see Ranko and Cornelius just because it would, you know, it would make 
the way they play together would complement each other really nice. You have a left footer, a right footer. You know, you, it just feel. I feel like it would be really calming at the back. And I do like Jester Community's game. And I feel like in a three at the back, this would, that would be really fun to watch. And who knows? We might even see a three at the back with what we've seen. It could be a way to, you know, massage the, the numbers they do have. But I do think for now, Cornelius Ranko, stylistically for how DeSantos wants to play, and considering the right footer, left footer thing, all that, I think it would just be the best match. But knowing DeSantos, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Ranko Kamiri because he is really – he really does like Kamiri's game. And I do like Kamiri's game, to be fair, as well. I just prefer Cornelius's style of defending. I like that calm presence. I like defenders who it's – you know, maybe you think of someone like Daniel Henry who's – you see him a lot, and that's good because he notices good things, but he also notices bad things. I like Cornelius because I don't see him in a game a lot, and that's good. I like I – like when center backs, I have to look for them and if I want to analyze them. But then besides that, I think Ali Adnan is probably going to play every game. But at the same time, I do think we're going to see Gutierrez because I feel like it would be criminal not to play him because he's really good. And it'd be, it's good to have him as a, back, a backup. And as you know with Adnan, fitness is a concern. So having those five subs, it would be nice. And I mean, we'll go on a rant in this later, I'm sure, with the subs in DeSantos since we are the third sub podcast. AK now the fifth sub podcast, but you know, it'd be nice for Ad for you know Gutierrez to get minutes when Adnan's just not tracking back because Gutierrez is a good player. Right back's a lot more interesting. Snorwinski again, he's a really good offensive threat and he's a good defender. But we saw what Bikel can do in limited minutes despite having to mark one of the best wingers in MLS. So I'm thinking if Whitecaps are playing Chicago and you have Frank Kowski to deal with, do you see Bikel make an interest? I mean, Seattle doesn't they're more of a central heavy team. They don't really have a winger. So I could see Norwinski, you know, play. Obviously there's Jordan Morris, but I don't know. I think Norwinski might be likely to play against the Seattle, but, you know, or even a San Jose where, again, they like to play through the middle. But against a Chicago, do we see Bikel man Mark Frankowski? I think, you know, that in mind, that would be my back four as a result. I do think we could see Bikel used tactically, but from there on, I just – I hope basically my, my hopes are center backs. I said what I had to say left back. It's Adnan's game every game, but I would like to see some 30 or 20 minutes of Gutierrez every once in a while. And then right back tactically, Bacal, but if not Norwinsky, I really confident in his game. And I think he can do good. Well, and because you have five subs, you can use a sub more often on a fullback. I think when you've only got three, a lot of the time, yeah, a lot of the time you kind of go, oh, well, using it on defender is a bit of a waste. But now that you've got five, it's just that added level of flexibility. And as you said, I think, you know, are are you going to count on Adnan to go a full 90 all three matches? I I sincerely doubt it. And so we're definitely going to see Gutierrez get in, I think, at some point. And maybe Bikel on the right as well. But that kind of leads into my midfield um, I kind of did a, what was essentially like a staggered four, three, three. So in the midfield, you've got sort of a, an inverted triangle and Bakel manning that center defensive mid position with an in bomb and Leonard Wusu occupying those top two spots in the midfield. So I think the only real debate there is will Russell Tybert get in? Will Russell Tybert be used as a CDM. And maybe if you see Bikel go to a back position, that's when Russell Tybert gets in. But uh, Alex, your thoughts there. Well, I like, that's interesting. I didn't really think of Tybert because I feel like Tybert was one of the bright spots on this team in preseason in the first two games. So I feel like it'd be tough to see Tybert go. And that's where we might see Bikel shift out kind of as like, 
we know Bikel can play right back. Play him at right back. Bikel would be a very good utility sub player. I, yeah. I will say that. But I feel like his impact is going to be better as a starter. And I feel like Tybert is a good sub as well. But I feel like his energy is just – like, for a player, like, you know, he gets a lot of that talk. What I'm impressed, like, in LA Galaxy, despite there being so many stars on the field, you kind of felt like Russell Tybert, and in a sense, by extension, Huang Inbom that day, since they played in the midfield too, they set the tone, which is impressive, despite there being the Pavons, the Chicharitos, the Cavallinis, you know, the Jonathan DeSantos. Well, he came on as a sub, but, you know, all these big players – the guy setting the tone was Russell Tybert. And I think that on the field, it's effective because he, he just is such an intense player and he really dictates. He's maybe not the more dictating player as like a Pirlo type of dictating where he just holds on to the ball and slows down the game. But he just, he puts the game at a speed he wants to play it at. And it's, it's useful for DeSantos who plays high octane soccer. I think Tybert would be a good shout. And I think Huang is definitely going to play. I think Owusu is definitely going to play. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how DeSantos handles that. Does he go for maybe against, I think we might see again tactically against a team like, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, where there's less of a midfield threat. Maybe Chicago, but they do have a lot of bodies in the midfield. But even San Jose, where their team isn't maybe about midfielders, but it's more about just pressing it. You know, San Jose is a really team oriented. They've got their, man marking they've got their press oriented system okay you could get away with Tybert, Owusu, Han Huang despite the maybe less defensive impact that someone like Bakel who's a true six because you know San Jose is not going to exploit that they're going to prefer to exploit the wide areas and you'd want Bakel on the wing at the wing back and then you'd see Tybert really I feel like Tybert would really excel in a San Jose style game or even like you know Seattle does have typically they do have a good six you know, they do have, a, I'm pretty sure Gustav Svensson, I don't know if they, they got Joe Paolo now. Maybe we could see something like that against Seattle, but I maybe I'd prefer a Bakel as a six because they have Ladero. I'd want him to man-mark Ladero and take, and Joe Paolo and take away that space and have that congested. Then, you know, look at Chicago. They don't have a pure six. They do have a, a pretty good 10, but, you know, they don't have guy 10 anymore. They do have the, the new guy, I think Ramirez, we mentioned earlier, Jimenez. You know, maybe we can get again get away with Tiber. I'd like to see them use that more because I feel like as four midfielders go, Awusu, Tiber, Bakel, and Huang, those are four really good options to have as starters. And then from there, you have the option of using guys like, you know, Baldissimo, you know, uh, Patrick Metcalf, Damiano Castillo, who can all play as eights and sixes off the bench. You know, I feel like. They can, basically, they have a good chance at putting up starters that can really help them play the way they want to play, depending on the opponent. And they also do have good young players who can bring, who have, like, Pasil's a complete midfielder. You know, Metcalf, he's a really complete midfielder. Again, uh, what's it, uh, Baldissimo, again. So I feel like midfield-wise, they're actually quite good. And I think I'm really excited for the midfield. And I think of those young midfielders, Patrick Metcalf will probably be probably be the one that we see get the most action. He's kind of the most the most experienced, seems to have the most of Mark Dos Santos's confidence of anyone in that young midfield. And and yeah, interesting. You're probably a little uh, a little heavier on the Tybert support than I am, but uh, that's kind <laughs> of a topic for another day. But one position that's kind of wide open, and this is when I was putting together my front three 
it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. There's so many different things that could go on tactically. You've got Theo Bear, Kristen Dahomey, David Milinkovic, Ryan Raposo, and Jordi Reyna. And Coleman, too. And, yeah, Coleman certainly could be I used. I left him more as a 10. Yeah, in a 10 wide position. But what gives me a lot of pause there is, again, if we kind of go back to the Theo is not a target man striker, you've got Dahomey who's, despite the fact that I think a lot of people – just see Dahomey as like a, a last Bangura Lucas Venuto 2.0. That's not really not. the case. He's more He's of a guy good. that likes to be on the ball, cut in, you know, interplay with other players. Then you've got Milinkovic, who's very much kind of like a midfielder winger. So very similar, likes to, likes to cut in, you know, play some intricate passes. Then you've got, you know, Jordi Reyna, which I think you, you still haven't really figured out what his best position is. He sometimes plays at that false nine, sometimes you know plays at that 10, sometimes plays out in the wing. You've got Ryan Raposo, who could be a winger or a bit of a, of a 10 striker, depends. You've got all these guys where, you know, you don't, I guess when I'm looking at the roster, you don't have a out-and-out pacey winger wide player and you don't have an out and out target man striker so the question is what is your best front three what is the best front front three in terms of creating goals and and kind of making all these unique pieces fit together and to be honest I don't really have a I don't really have an answer I seem to have this sneaking suspicion that Mark DeSantos is going to use Jordi Reina as like a a kind of false nine drop off striker with a couple wingers. But then I'm concerned about the ability for the white caps to play in wide areas and kind of spread the field. I'm, I'm very concerned that they become kind of stagnated in the middle of the park and all kind of bunch up. But Alex, I'm interested to hear your thoughts. This is going to be hot. I think I'm going to come in with a hot take. I feel like the front three available to Mark DeSantos fits him more than what he had they say Cavallini and Montero come in. That's where it's hot. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with that. I'm just not sure that that's like necessarily the right thing to do. I don't know. We're going to have to see. I might yeah, be eating my words see, here. We're going to see tactically how it's going to work. But as much as I like Lucas Cavallini's game, I think him and Mark DeSantos are an imperfect match. Yeah, the, the style doesn't really fit. I, I say that because imperfect because defensively Cavallini is basically DeSantos' dream. He's, mm-hmm. He presses hard. He's intense. He, you know, he gets stuck in. He does move well for a big guy. But I look offensively, you know, Mark DeSantos likes interchangeability from his front three. He likes his front three to be mobile to roam. And Cavallini is pretty mobile for a big guy. He does, from what I've scouted of him and seen him play, he's so good at getting these half spaces between defenders and like, and you know, just and finding ways to leash, unleash his strike and unleash his headers, despite his, you know, his shorter frame, he finds those spaces to get his head off, his headers off. But like purely stylistically, I feel like a front three, for example, of Dahomey, Reyna and Milinkovic really fits DeSantis's play. And I think if they can find a way to filter the ball to Reyna to make sure he doesn't fade off in the game, I think it could really make magic. And I think of someone like Theo Bear, he would be really good for this system. Instead of, you know, instead of Reyna, for example, I think of what if the Whitecaps, they played a double pivot of, you know, just throwing, maybe you put Bikela right back and we see Huang and Owusu together. And then we see Reyna as a 10. And, you know, we see Bear 
Milinkovic and Dahomey. Obviously, this would have to be a team against less of a midfield. So I don't know. I'm thinking maybe it wouldn't be a Seattle. It would be maybe more of a Chicago. And I'm just using three teams. Obviously, there's a lot of teams in MLS where it could or couldn't work. But I'm just thinking of the three teams in the group. Against Chicago, could we see a double pivot? Reina at the 10 and Bear, you know, and home in Milinkovic. Because from there, it would just be so annoying for defenders because Reina pops up in these little half spaces all over the pitch. And he'd get, he'd get to Rome. Bear, you don't know if he's going to show up his six foot four, four slash five frame. You don't know if it's going to be in your, in your center backs tiring them down. You don't know if he's going to pull up on your full backs and run at them. You don't know where he's going to go. You know, and same with Dahomey. You don't know if he's going to cut in and annoy you and Milinkovic. And I just feel like that sort of interchangeability, if they can find a way to make sure they don't gap, like leave these huge gaps in the front line and they can find the right half spaces, I feel like that could be really Mark DeSantos style football. Because mm-hmm. what we've noted over time is that he – him and wingers are an interesting relationship. He doesn't like out-and-out wingers. That's why Theo Bear got so many minutes last year as a winger because Theo Bear and, is a And last year he brought in, he brought in two players that he really that really weren't his profile on the wing. And I think mm-hmm. that's part of why, you know, I think a lot of people just went, oh, Las Bangura and Lucas Venuto aren't good players. And I, I don't no, think that was the case at all. They just didn't the fit the style. And we saw that with Bear. And we saw that with Chirinos when he came in. They just fit in that system because they're wingers who aren't out-and-out wingers. And I think with Bear and Reyna's potential strikers, I feel like as long as DeSantos finds a way to really get them to fill the spaces he needs in a front three, I think we'd be surprised at how good it will be. Like, not saying it'll be great like mm-hmm. or excellent. We don't, it's too early to say, but I feel like the potential there is, you know, surprisingly high considering what we – you might see this roster. Oh, you're missing Freddie Montero, all his experience. You're missing Cavallini. Obviously, you'd like those guys, and they'd make a difference. But I think stylistically, we're going to see a lot more fluid of a Whitecaps team. And who knows? We don't know if they'll be better or worse, but I think they're going to be a lot more fluid. So I guess what I'd push back with, to play, play a bit of the contrarian point here, is that, that that system, say, if you have Dahomey and Milinkovic out in the wings and you've got Yuri Arena and Theo Bear kind of swapping back and forth – that requires a lot of, you know, a lot of interplay, a lot of training, a lot of, a lot of confidence, you know, a lot of looking at film. And it just, it doesn't seem necessarily like a system that's going to work super well in this environment. Like I think when you're over the course of the regular season, you continue to build up and work on that. You can really perfect a system like that. But I feel like sometimes in, in a tournament like this, you know, the Whitecaps maybe might suffer from the fact that you can't just kind of hoof it to Cavallini in the box and have him finish a chance. Or, you know, even Freddie Montero, as he's sort of declined a bit over the years, he's still a guy that can just pop up and take advantage of a defender's mistake and dispose it in the back of the net. And so I think my concern is not that the potential of a front four like that isn't incredibly high because I'm, I'm very excited about that possibility, but I'm, I'm definitely concerned about the Whitecaps' ability to put that together in a short span of time under strange circumstances. I guess we'll see what they worked on in training as well in full team training, because it's going to be, it's going to be interesting because everyone's going to be rusty and it's going to be, interested to see how they fare against a rusty defense 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, they have the disadvantage of playing, I think, is it San Jose next? And San Jose will have already played a game, so they won't be as rusty. But, like, you know, defender, we're going to see how they can cope against the defenders. And one thing that we did note from the Whitecaps this year already versus last year, they're a lot better at creating chances. Obviously, having Lucas Cavallini on the pitch helped, but it, it does seem like they can create chances, and it wasn't just Cavallini. We saw guys like Raposo, we didn't even mention this debate. Again, he fits really well yeah. into this position debate. We looked at guys like Ricketts, obviously isn't here, which is unfortunate because he's actually, you know, he's, he's, he's turned into a really useful piece for the Whitecaps, but in those games, Malinkovic, Dahomey, Raposo, guys, Reyna, other guys other than Cavallini were really good at generating chances. And I think as long as they can find a way in the final third to make their presence known and really use, use the fluidity to their advantage and make it so it looks less like a bunch of dudes playing on Sunday League running around aimlessly and more like we're running around what looks like aimlessly, but we know what we're doing and we can generate chances and we can put defenders in uncomfortable positions. I think that's where we see how offensively competent or incompetent the Whitecaps are. It's going to depend on their ability to find the, the space and use their midfielders. I think of Huang and Owusu, they're excellent passers. Are they going to be able to use that advantage? Are they going to use Adnan's overlap threat to you know, mess with defenders. Okay, I have Milinkovic cutting in. I've added an overlapping. What the heck do I do? You know, using those things to their advantage and using their weapons and using their strengths and weaknesses to their advantage. And I think if I'm the Whitecaps, I want to, looking at my team now, since we, there's not an out-and-out striker. There's one of our best players is a left back, for example, those kinds of things. You know, if I'm a head coach, I'd be okay. I want to maximize my overlap threat with Aliad, and I want to maximize my front three fluidity. I want to, you know, I want to take advantage of those things. I'll be interested to see how Marcus Santos does that. It's a it's a true coaching challenge, and uh, Dos Santos has alluded to this that you know, for not only himself but for most of these MLS coaches, it's going to be one of, if not the greatest challenge of their coaching careers to you know, not only tactically, but as sort of a leader of men, keep the team in check, you know, keep the team playing the way you want them to play. And DeSantos has kind of hammered over and over and over again that just because we're in this weird tournament, just because the MLS season has been essentially completely blown up, doesn't mean that he wants to play any differently than he was initially planning on. And so I think, yeah, we're going to see DeSantos truly try to, you know, uh, employ his system and, and it's just a matter of time to see how it works out. But uh, just to touch on, all, I guess the last couple of MLS topics, first of all, we've got, as you mentioned, Seattle versus San Jose at 6 PM tonight. This is, we're recording this on Friday. So uh, by the time, today yeah, well. by the, by the but. time we get to you with the next podcast though, we're obviously going to have watched that match and, and not only probably have some touching points and some things we've seen, from those two teams, but also hopefully some insights from those markets into what we can expect from those first two matchups. So with, with a lot of turnover this week, we just, it didn't really, uh, didn't really materialize to put together some guests to bring some insight, but hopefully we're going to have that for a podcast early next week. So looking forward to that matchup, but then also the last thing I wanted to touch on and maybe a bit of a, I don't want to say somber, but a bit, a bit of a more concerning topic was uh, that Reyes injury from the opening match. And I think it just kind of pointed out 
some of the concerns, you know, not only there's been a lot of focus paid to conditions at the tournament and, you know, how players are staying safe within the bubble, but then you see something that happens like what happened to Reyes and he's, he's down on the ground. He's having a bit of difficulty breathing and he got, you know, hit in the throat by Dom Dwyer, which is a, a separate topic we could get into. And I don't really want to <laughs> go on a Dom Dwyer rant here, but you can, you can probably guess what my opinions are about that. But what it kind of pointed to was, you know, what if you have someone with a severe injury and they have to go to an Orlando hospital and then return to the bubble and just, it was one of those moments where I think when he was down and then was getting stretchered off, a lot of people on social were sort of like, Oh yeah, wait, that creates a huge issue. And Mm -hmm. uh, it was just, yeah, it was a bit of a moment of reckoning and hopefully, obviously we're fingers crossed. You don't want to see anyone get injured at any time, but especially at a tournament like this, you, you really hope that there aren't too many injuries, but it's a, it's a definite concern and, and something we're going to have to monitor throughout the rest of the tournament. That's one thing about the bubble. There's no hospital in the bubble, and that's what we're going to see. Hopefully, there's no serious injuries because obviously, if someone's going to the hospital, it's usually a major injury, but that would be a tough blow for someone to go to the hospital precautionary, you know, and, and then he's fine, but then he can't play, you know, because he's been in that COVID hotspot. And then a player, or, you know, or, you know, it punishes the team and the player, but they're being precautionary. You know, yeah, at the like, same time, you don't want to prevent someone from going to the hospital yeah, you because you're pre- worried about him not being able to return to play. Yeah, and you don't want people to game the system or you don't want players to target players, you know, to, you know, maybe, you know, people aren't going to put someone in the hospital. I don't think there's malicious players, but, you know, would a player leave a little something in, you know, an attack will knowing that, you never know what these kind of what these players are thinking of. Some players, you know, they genuinely might just have dirty intentions, and that is that is worrying. And obviously, you want to hope a hope that there's no injuries, and b that if people that safety is ensured. And I think it's it's just it's a tough subject, and it's really one where it's like you just hope we don't see any more of it because you know surprisingly across leagues we've seen a lot of injuries but we haven't seen any big injuries mostly it's just muscle issues because of the quarantine we haven't seen those bad injuries and hopefully that stays the case because that is a worry especially in Orlando especially especially in Orlando so then one of the one of the final topics I think we wanted to touch on was uh young defender for the Whitecaps uh Gianfranco Facinari has been loaned out to Ottawa uh, of the CPL, and that is going to run through September, I believe. So maybe a a bit of a clue there about what the CPL's intentions are, despite the fact we haven't had news. But yeah, just quickly, Alex, if you wanted to touch on that, I think both of us can say that, you know, the opportunity for Fatchinari to to see some some significant matches is can only be positive. I love the move, obviously, again development squad rent, whatever we could do yeah. that every time. It'd be nice to see him come up the white cap system. But I feel like teams should use CPL loans more because it's good for the player. It's good for the caps and it's good for the Ottawa. And I think in that case, a win, win, win. Facinari's what? 18, 17. He's a center back. Most center backs have developed later. I think it's going to be huge for him to get those first team minutes with Ottawa because they only have, he's their second center back. And I know he's that. going to play. I know that he, he needs those Mark DeSantos. Sorry to interrupt you there, Alex, but Mark right. DeSantos, Nick Dasovich, 
Craig Jarumpel, like everyone at that Whitecap staff, they have an incredibly high degree of confidence in Fashionary. Like if, Honestly, if you look, I would too. If you look at He's anyone a... in that youth development squad, I think lots of guys on the staff point to him as an example, not only from like a work ethic perspective, but from his quality on the pitch, his leadership. And so obviously this is a decision they would have made thinking that this is the right thing for his development, because I think there's a lot of belief inside the walls at the Whitecaps that he's a, he's a future MLS center back. Well, we think of Ranko. He's kind of our young Canadian Ranko, if we're going to put it that way. He's got the same attributes and that's exciting as a center back. He's kind of like the classic 17 going on 35 maturity level, just, you know, he's working on his frame. He's a good defender. And I think it's a win-win-win because the Whitecaps have a lot of center backs. So he wasn't going to get minutes. The development squad, he's at the point where he's beyond the development squad or a second team, even if there was a second team. Well, obviously it depends where the second team is, if it was USL or this or that. But I think the CPL is kind of like going to be like a second team level for him. He's going to play a lot for Ottawa. They're a good team. They have good coaches. They're going to play good level. I think – It'd be nice to see more players use that avenue. And you see it with Montreal. They loaned out James Pantemish to Valor. You look at, you know, those are the kinds of loans you want to see. I think of someone like Simon Coline, if he isn't going to get minutes because there's already Raposo and Reina at that. What if we saw Coline maybe at a Pacific FC or even like an FC Edmonton? That would be, you know, that would be a good move. You could see him play against pros, but maybe not play have to be competing against guys who are national team stalwarts for big countries like in MLS. Like, you know, maybe you don't have to see Coline match up against a Jonathan Dos Santos, but in the CPL would be a good way for him to play those men, but play at a, a level that's more, you know, easy to ease into, at least if you're not going to be throwing him into the fire like you did with an Alfonso Davies. And I think someone like Coline, for example, obviously, maybe someone like Baldissimo is a little older, but, you know, he could go play with his brother at Pacific or, you know, someone like Metcalf. Obviously, those guys are a little older. I'm thinking more like guys like Coline. I'm thinking like a Pasteel. I'm thinking like, a, you know, I'm thinking like Hassel. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking guys in that 17 to 20-year-old range. I'm thinking Cameron Habibula. You know, those, those guys, they could really – the CPL teams could use them and they could use the CPL. I feel like it's a match. Obviously you don't want to like turn into an MLS lone league, but I feel like it would just be, let's just say it would be a beneficial relationship. Let's say to have maybe two or three of those loans, not yeah, like was, not a full loan team, but like a couple of them, you know, I was going to say that there's a, there's certainly a degree of sensitivity amongst CPL fans. And, and I think people within the league about becoming an MLS development ground. Like they very much want to draw that line that we are not an MLS development, you know, training ground, but at the same time, you can take advantage of that relationship. And, and I guess just one final thing I wanted to bring up was that we see now TFC two that plays in the USL because of border issues and just all the logistics that would have been involved. They've essentially, pulled out or, or, or they made a statement that they're not going to be involved in, you know, any kind of USL soccer this season. And that brings up a huge, you know, question of, okay, a bunch of those guys, could they get loaned out to the CPL? And I know there were a, a varying degree of responses as to, you know, how that should be dealt with, but ultimately you just want to see these young players get good opportunities at a level that's appropriate for their development. And, you know, hopefully all the politics, 
fall away to a certain extent enough for these guys all to get meaningful minutes. We talked about this a lot with Ben Steiner. Like, you know, obviously there's relationships between U sports and the CPL, between the MLS and the CPL and, you know, the CPL has its own interests, but from our perspective, I think, you know, we're a, we'd like to think of ourselves as a player's podcast. We just want to see guys get minutes and continue to grow and develop. And so hopefully that will continue to happen like we're seeing with Fashionary. Mm-hmm. And I do get CPL teams, especially for young players. You look at Pacific, they have that youth movement and they own all the players. And I feel like I could see the benefit to that. Like they know that they're going to grow together as a team. And then when guys like Taryn Campbell, who shout, shout myself out, I just dropped a lengthy interview article with him this morning on BTS. So check that out. He's a very interesting and well-spoken young man and a very talented player. So. Shout, shout out to him for, for being a, a good sport with that interview. But, you know, him and Taryn Campbell, Caden Chung, uh, Noah Verhoeven, Zach Verhoeven, they got all these young players and there's some gems in there. Trust me, I've, you, if, you, if you guys haven't, you know, any listeners haven't watched Pacific play, like stay tuned for those guys. Like they're, you know, hot prospects. And I can see the alert of them growing up together and helping Pacific win things and then move on for transfer fees that help Pacific. And I can see why they wouldn't want a handful of loans just to come in and, you know, provide some value, but not have all the value. And I can see why they'd rather own the players outright, especially CPL, you know, as a young feeder league, they want to have that, you know, ability to move players on to the next level. But at the same time, I think it's healthy to find that mix of, you know, young players, but also in hungry loanees who need minutes and will fight for minutes and improve the young players you have. Like if you have a handful of eight or 10 players that, you know, are yours, they came up through your academy or you bought them, you know, to have them surrounded by two or three, for example, Whitecaps prospects who are just hungry, but they don't need, they haven't gotten any minutes. And they, you know, just to have that sort of team environment, it's good for a league like the CPL. We see that with other feeder leagues abroad. Why like, you know, second divisions in Europe, for example, obviously the CPL is a first division league, but, you know, it's kind of like that. They're at that stage. They're still growing. They're not a. They are a first division, but they're maybe not a marquee first division yet. And they're they're pretty, they're closer than we think, and they're they're doing a good job at that. But I think using that competitive and finding that way to get that competitive edge would be beneficial to their players, to them, and to teams with aspirations. I feel like there's nothing wrong with a good loan or two, and I think it's good to see Fatsumiari do that for the white for Ottawa because I think they're going to benefit from his presence. Yeah. And I feel like we say this pretty much every podcast now, and I'm hoping that we don't have to say it sometime soon, but fingers crossed that we hear some CPL news in the near future here. But Alex, with that, um, is there anything else you want to get off your chest on this episode number 22 of the third sub? Or does I got a lot off my up? chest today. I got a lot. Yeah, we went on a pretty good rant there about the MLS broadcast package and some of the things we saw. I quite enjoyed that. But. <laughs> and we talked some tactics. So shout out. I do know there's a listener. I don't know who he is or who she he is, but on our iTunes, thanks for leaving a five-star back in February and you, they did say they loved our tactics talk. So this one's for you. If you're still, you're still kicking around and listening to us. Well, well it was great to actually talk about tactics with like a matchup coming and, and we can kind of start hypotheticals. to, you know, you can start to kind of push the chess pieces around and really think about how things are going to play out again. I've really missed that. So I was glad to get back into it. Well, I just missed thinking. I was, it was nice to think like, yeah. 
I want to play Bikel at a right back, but not against Chicago. You know, like things you can like only, that. You can only do so many pure news stories. It's really nice to get back into, you know, what soccer is actually about, which is what happens out in the pitch. And, you know, the fact that we're getting back into that with the Whitecaps here in a couple of days is, is a thrill. Uh, yeah. I guess shout out to that person. Shout out to, to Game Talk and uh, – I guess for anyone, any of the people who've made it this far, thanks for listening. If you, if, you, if you would be so kind, if you do think anyone out there is looking for a White Caps or podcast or MLS or tactics talk, do be, do be kind and maybe rent, recommend it, send it their way, or you know, shoot us a review on iTunes. Obviously, we're not one to, to ask too much for that stuff. We haven't been all the time. Just having you guys listen is more than enough. But you know, if you are feeling, feeling some love, it does it does help us and we do appreciate the support. We do have a solid listener base. We're happy to, to have you and we're always happy to, to have some more join the fun. Join the fun cause we're always, we got a lot of white caps to talk about and we're going to have some fun guests and stuff coming up. So it's just, it's just good, good vibes. Yeah. Any and all feedback and publicity always helps us out. We, we really appreciate all of you out there listening and, uh, yeah, I think that pretty much wraps it up. Uh, as always, you can find me on Samuel underscore Rowboat on Twitter, also at 86forever on Twitter, because we've been doing some live tweeting about you know the MLS's back tournament, even if it's not Whitecaps matches. And you can also find us on 86forever.com, where we're going to you know continue to roll out pre-match stuff. I just dropped something the other day about Chicago and the updated schedule. And uh, Alex, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, I think it's going to be busy. I feel like I, I said this for the last while, but we're ramping up on BTS. I'm starting to lose some sleep and get my keyboard fingers back to back in order. But I got that interview with Taryn Campbell. Check, do check that out. It is a, it is a gem. Uh, we got today within in a two and a half hours. So by the time this is out, I don't think anyone will have been this far in the episode without having it already happened. So we're going to have done a Feel Bear live stream. So you can go check out the highlights of that on our Instagram and I'll I'll have an article out within the day, I think, about what we talked about with Feel Bear and then from there we have previews. I want to talk about lineups. I want to talk about tactics again. And now that we have a, a, finally a date for the Whitecaps to play, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fun few days. So check that out. BTSFancy.com, my Twitter at Alex Hungry Like I'm active, I'm tweeting, I'm doing the the whole shebang. So, so stay tuned for that. And I think that's that's it. Stay stay safe and stay tuned for a jam-packed episode 23. I, I you know no fingers, no promises yet, but it should be a pretty busy and fun episode with uh, maybe some interesting people that might join us for that one. Yeah, we're definitely going to get into more of the X's and O's tactics-wise about how Vancouver is going to match up against both San Jose and Seattle. So for now, yeah, and Chicago, which we already touched on a little bit. But yeah, for now, enjoy the matches, everyone. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll chat again soon.